All right, good morning. I think the handouts are being passed out. Does everybody have one that wants one or needs one? Nobody has one. Jeremy failed me. I told him. I don't know if we're going to have enough, but hold one or two back in case we don't have enough and we need to make more copies. All right, well, oh, it's coming, Miss Darling. Yes, ma'am, it's coming. All right, let me explain a little bit about the way this quarter is going to work, just so nobody's confused. In the auditorium, this quarter, there will be a class on the fundamentals of the faith taught by Josh Atkins and Clint Arverson. Josh taught last week the first lesson talking about authority. Today was supposed to be, I believe, a class on the covenants, but Clint's job due to the tornadoes that came through yesterday necessitated him being out. So Romans is in here. Last week we didn't have Romans because there was the Christmas party meal. And so I wasn't in the NPR. But typically, Lord willing, start next Sunday. Fundamentals of the faith will be in the auditorium. Josh Atkins and Clint Arverson and I'll be teaching Romans in the NPR. But today everybody's going to be in the auditorium as we're going to do the book of Romans and we're going to start. Um, this morning. I hope this screen fits. This PowerPoint was originally prepared for the NPR screen, and there's a little bit of different dimensions. Randy helped me out some, but hopefully that'll work through. I'm going to give everybody a second to get seated, and then I do want to have a prayer for those affected by the tornado yesterday and their families, and some people unfortunately lost their lives. And so let us pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for being our God. We pray for your mercy and compassion for those that are Affected by the tornado yesterday in Tennessee and parts of Kentucky, we pray that you would be with the families of those who've lost loved ones, for those who have been misplaced and lost property. And we thank you for being with us and protecting us. We know you're sovereign over creation, and we pray that somehow through tragedy and loss, people come to see you, and that'll be the greatest victory. Be with us as we study your word today. Help us to be better servants of yours because of our association with your word and with your people. Be with us now and in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. As they're passing those out, I'll just go ahead and get started. So this quarter, like I mentioned, we'll be working through the book of Romans. And as you know, the book of Romans is one of the most well-known books of the New Testament. It's been called by some people Paul's magnum opus, meaning Paul's most prized and prestiged book that he wrote. In fact, people have given more attention to Romans than any of Paul's other letters. It's the longest epistle written by Paul. And so for that reason, it's been given a lot of attention and praise. Somebody has said about the book of Romans, if you get Romans, God gets you. And the point is that Romans carries so many deep biblical concepts about our Christian relationship to God, New Testament theology, that if you actually grasp what Paul is teaching in these 16 chapters, God will get you no problem. And so people love the book of Romans, spend a lot of time studying it. And we're going to see in a moment. I'm going to walk through just some examples of this. It's one of the books that's very familiar. Like there are a lot of verses in Romans that people know well. So let's just see. What's your favorite verse in the book of Romans or a verse that you know well from Romans? Anybody? Romans 8.1. OK, so Paul. What was that? Yeah, I knew that. I knew that already. Romans 8.1. Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Anybody else? Famous or favorite verses in the book of Romans for you? 5.8. Yes. God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for six one. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's Paul's response? Certainly not. Or may it never be so. 
6-4, buried with Christ in baptism. So all of these verses, we know Romans pretty well, and for good reason. I'm telling you, it's one of the famous verses of the New Testament. Just think about, and you've got your Bible open to Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to mention some verses from Romans, and, t- and let's just see how Romans covers some of the major concepts of Christianity in just some of its short verses. For example, Romans 1 and verse 16. I thought somebody would mention this one, but it talks about the gospel, right? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice Romans 1:17. Romans 1:17 says we're justified by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Turn to Romans chapter three. Romans three and notice verse 23. The book of Romans in some of these short Burst of verses. Just consider some of the greatest themes. The gospel is God's power to save. Romans 1:16. We're justified by faith. Romans 1:17. Probably everybody in the auditorium knows 3:23. All have and fallen short of the glory of God. That's in the book of Romans. We're justified by faith. That's Romans 5 and verse 1. Turn over to Romans 6. Go to Romans 6. And 3:23 goes together. And 6:23. Right? What is Romans 6:23? The wages of sin is, but, and the back half of this verse doesn't get as much praise as the first half, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, what about when things are going bad? Sometimes in life things don't go the way that we want them to. We're God's people. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and notice verse 28. Romans 8, 28, you've seen this one before, right? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for what? For the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All of these famous verses, the gospel is God's power to save. We're justified by faith and the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans 1.17. All of sin. Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. All things work together for good. Just let's do a few more. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And this is a plan of salvation verse. And we'll talk about it in this context at some point. But Romans 10, 9 and 10. Paul says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that Christ has been raised from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth confession is made unto what? You've got to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And there are others, but the last one we'll look at, which is known by members of Churches of Christ and for good reason, is Romans 16, 16, right? So in Romans 16, Paul's given this long list of salutations, and he's mentioning individuals. He starts with Phoebe in verse 1. Priscilla and Aquila three and four. He's listing all these people. And then in verse 16, he just summarizes the churches of Christ salute you or greet you, the congregations of God's people. And so these are familiar sections to us, these verses. And there are others that, you know, and I know from the book of Romans. And I think that's great. And I want to touch on some of those themes as we walk through the book this quarter. But I also want us to be careful because. Romans has this kind of tweetable feel to it, if you know what I mean. There are these just pithy verses that you can grab and quote. Romans 3.23, know that one. Romans 6.23, can't forget that one. And there's this approach to the book of Romans that says a lot of people know Romans 1, 2, and 3 really good. There's some interesting stuff in 4 and 5. Let's leave 9 and 11 off, and there's some good stuff at the back. I mean, that's how a lot of people can approach the book of Romans instead of appreciating the whole of Romans and seeing what was Paul saying to people in the first century and at this time. I need one of the handouts myself just so I make sure I stay on task. But anyway, all right, questions for reflection. I just want to mention a few of these. And today's supposed to be an introduction on Romans. If we get to chapter one, that'll be great. But if we don't, that'll be fine, too. Thank you, Roger. Oh, 
Okay, well, thanks. All right, so let's look at some questions or reflections on the book of Romans, some things to consider. Number one, how do we go about Romans? So what if somebody was to ask you, I know, I told you, I hope it's big enough to see. What if somebody were to say to you, summarize the book of Romans in your own words? Briefly, what would you say is the summary of the book of Romans? What do you think is the whole focus of the book of Romans? How would you summarize it? Okay, salvation through Christ in the church. That's a good start. I think that's salvation is a definite part of what Romans is all about. And through Christ, Paul's going to deal with that. Anybody else? How would you summarize the book of Romans? Somebody said faith. Who said that? Roger. Faith is going to be one of Paul's major thrusts, especially in chapters four and five. Andy. Okay, so Jews and Gentiles both fall short. God's got the same solution for everybody. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. Everybody has to come through the same thing. Anybody else? How would you summarize the message of Paul in the book of Romans? And don't worry, there is some stuff on the handout that's going to be up there soon. I know some of y'all are itching like, where's the where's the stuff? But it's coming. All right. What about what else? What do we have on the book of Romans? Salvation through faith, grace. Jew and Gentile, anybody else, what would you say is the major thrust? If somebody says, summarize the book of Romans in your own words, what would you say? God's righteousness is an important theme. Yes. How does God and when we talk about God's righteousness, we'll define it. But the whole idea is how do people get made right with God? That's how Paul uses this idea of righteousness. And so what does that deal with? Okay, so that's the summary. I just want us to be thinking as we go through Romans, I want you to develop your own. And you'll be and we'll be better Bible students if we learn how to do this really for every book of the Bible. Somebody says Habakkuk, if you can say, oh, in my mind, that whole book's about this. It probably won't cover all the bases. But if we can develop our own summary of each book of the Bible, it'll help us to move forward. So hopefully we'll provide some things that will help with that in the book of Romans. Second, why do we need to study Romans today? I think it goes to something Andy mentioned a moment ago, and that is we've got the same problems. Everybody's major problem in the world is still what? And the answer to that problem is still who? Jesus Christ. And so we still need to find ourselves studying the book of Romans. Okay, and this is Kim Moyers was talking about salvation. What would you say to this? And I'm asking these questions because they're later going to be answered in the book of Romans. But I want us to prime the pump for how we think in relation to what Paul says in Romans. So here's a few questions that I want us to work through a little bit. If somebody said to you today, how are we saved? What would you say? If somebody says, how does a person get made right with God? What does a person have to do in order to be saved? What would you tell them they had to do? Okay, obey the gospel. Paul's going to use those words in other places. Romans 6 and verse 17, he's going to say, you've obeyed that pattern of doctrine, the form of doctrine delivered to you. Okay, obey the gospel. Andy? Okay, back then as far as when? Okay, New Testament time, saved just like them. Maybe go to the book of Acts for some of that. What else? If somebody said, how are we saved today? Okay, we start with faith and belief. What about, what if somebody said this to you? What if somebody said, how do you respond to this statement? We're saved by faith. Is that true or false? True. Okay, what if somebody said, um, we're saved by the grace of God. Is that true or false? True. Would you change anything in any any one of those statements? If somebody said we're saved by faith, would you say that's it? Saved by grace. Would you modify any of those statements or are they fine just the way they are? Blood of Christ Christ is included in that. Okay. Paul's going to deal with all that. So don't worry if you didn't have an answer. You didn't work through that just yet. But Paul's going to help us out. 
Paul's going to deal with what's the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament in the book of Romans. He'll talk about how we should be reading Abraham and some other folks. And that as he works through the book, what is the primary motivation for obeying Jesus Christ? This is a good question. And Paul's going to answer it in the book of Romans. If somebody were to ask you, what is your primary motivation for obeying Jesus? I mean, the real reason why you do it. I'm not asking why we should obey. I'm saying, what is your primary reason, your primary motivation? I sometimes want to do wrong and then I choose to do the right thing or I do what's right because of what? What would you say, even if you wish it were something else, what is your genuinely primary motivation? What pushes you to do what's right more than anything else? What's your genuine motivation? The promise of salvation. Okay, that's a good motivation. What else? The love of God. Anybody ever obey just because they don't want to get in trouble and they feel like I probably don't want to go to hell. Anybody? What was that? Used to? Yeah, so that can be a motivation. What Paul's going to say in the book of Romans is the primary reason for serving God and being motivated to obey him no matter what is because of God's salvation provided in Christ. He makes this case in the first 11 chapters, and then when you get to Romans 12 and verse 1, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he's basically arguing it just makes sense to serve God in view of all that he's done for you. The primary motivation for people serving God, hell is a great motivation. Jesus used it, right? We should think about the blood of Jesus and all of that. But according to Paul, one of the primary reasons we serve God the way we do is in in view of what God's done for us in Christ. And our service is our way to say thank you for what God's done. And Paul's going to focus on how we do that. All right. And then. Oh, yeah. Let me say that. Maybe you've read Romans before. What, in your opinion, is the most difficult section in the book of Romans or sections in the book of Romans? What would you say? And nobody say all of it. Okay. Yeah. What would you say is the most challenging section in the book of Romans? Most people have said chapters nine through 11. Chapters nine through 11 has some pretty difficult things. As Paul says in chapter nine, all Israel is going to be saved in chapter 11 and verse 26. But then he says, well, not all Israel is Israel. And then he'll say something about the Jews were broken off so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But then he comes back and says, but God's going to regraft in the Jews. He's going to make them a part of what he's doing again, too. So a lot of people struggle with how we handle Romans chapter nine, chapter 10 and chapter 11. But if we read the book as a whole and we see what Paul's saying, I think it clears up some of the confusion. Okay, now let's talk about some helpful tools for tackling Romans. And now your worksheet will mean something. Here are going to be some helpful tools for tackling the book of Romans. Number one. We'll be better students of the book of Romans if we read entire paragraphs and chapters and not just verses. So, you know how we started the class. I was mentioning some of those verses that we know well in Romans, Romans 3.23 and 6.23 and Romans 8.28. All of that's great. But we are going to be better students of the book of Romans and of the entire Bible when we read whole paragraphs and chapters and not just sections. I've got friends in different religious circles in the denominational world. And some of them subscribe to what they call this isn't what I'm saying about them. It's what they profess themselves as the Roman road to salvation. And the way it works is they start in Romans 1:16. The gospel is God's power to save salvation. Romans 3:23, All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Romans 6:23, The wages of sin is death. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with the mouth, you'll be saved. And then Romans eight and verse one, there's no condemnation. And they would argue that's the Roman road to salvation. And if you were to ask them, what must you do to be saved? They would go through and point out those verses in the book of Romans. And they'd say that's Paul's biblical plan of salvation. And as sincere 
And as devoted as that thought might be, it's not what Paul's arguing in any of those passages. And in some of the passages where we think, oh, Paul's talking about the plan of salvation. He may mention something that's a part of the plan, but that may not be what he was originally dealing with. So how are we going to figure it out? Instead of focusing on the verses that we've highlighted, that we know the best, that we sort of have just read into what Paul's saying, we'll be better students of Romans if we read whole paragraphs and chapters and not just cherry pick verses. And so we're going to try to focus on some of that. Second, Paul uses the Old Testament a lot in the book of Romans. Go to Romans 15 and get somebody to read whoever gets there first. Nice and loud. Read Romans 15 and verse four. Romans 15, four. I should have put the podium down there because there are a lot of people up here now and they might be talking behind my back, if you know what I mean. I didn't think it was going to be this way, but it's OK. Romans 15, four. Somebody read that. What is Paul talking about in 15, four? Whatever things were written before time. What was written before time? The Old Testament. And so Romans 15, four, Paul says whatever things Paul quotes more extensively from the Old Testament in the book of Romans than he does in any other book. Paul uses about 68 different references, direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Romans, but not just quotes. Paul mentions stories and narratives and allusions and Paul's greatest tool. We're going to be better students of Romans if we know Old Testament narratives and literature. But here's the good news for us. Just about every time Paul quotes from the Old Testament, he explains it and tells us what he's talking about. So the Old Testament is a great tool. Here's another thing. I want you to remember that the book of Romans was written for you and for me. Look at Romans one and verse seven. This is true about the whole Bible, mind you. The whole Bible was written for the servant and not the scholar. Do not think to yourself. I know some people have written about the book of Romans and they teach the book of Romans like everybody who was a Christian in the first century was in some kind of college lectureship. And Paul wrote a systematic theology. And, oh, if you you've got to really dig deep to understand Romans. There's some challenging concepts. But in Romans one and verse seven, who does Paul say he's writing to? He says to all in Rome. And then what does he say about them? They're who? Beloved by God and called to be. Who is that? You could just write in the margin, a.k.a. Christians. Right. Paul was writing to common people. There were educated people in the known world, to be sure. But the average Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire couldn't read or write. They learned by what they heard. They would come to these house churches and congregations that Paul's going to mention in chapter 16. And they were hearing this message read and expounded for the first time and seeing how do they apply it to their lives and make sense of it. And so we can do the same thing. It's just the same principle we learned in Revelation applies here. The Bible was written for you and me to understand. Do not be intimidated. Don't think you've got to get some kind of specialized training before you can comprehend what's being said. It may take some sweat equity on our part, but Romans was written for you. And if you approach Romans that way, if you're not intimidated and you don't throw up your hands and say, I'm just so confused. I don't know what to do with the book of Romans. We won't be discouraged and we can get through it. So just remember Romans was written for you. And here's the last thing. One of the helpful tools in understanding the book of Romans is context, context and context. Again, it means that when we open up our Bibles to the book of Romans, we've got to let Paul talk about what Paul's talking about. When Paul says we're saved by faith, Paul means what Paul means. Paul doesn't mean what maybe we've heard or what our denominational friends have said. Paul wasn't arguing in the ways that we sometimes talk about faith. We've got to let Paul say what he's saying. When Paul talks about works, Paul is not talking about works in the same way that James is in James chapter two. So don't make Paul and James go to war with each other. They're in agreement with each other. James is having a separate discussion in James chapter two about faith versus what Paul is saying about faith and works in the book of Romans. 
keep everything in its proper context. And what does that mean? It means just see Romans as dealing with exactly what Paul says in Romans. Don't read anything into it. Don't bring any baggage over. Just let Paul speak for himself. And I think if we do that, we'll be better students of the book of Romans. Okay, background information on Romans. Let's read Romans chapter 1 or verse 1. I'll start in verse 1. Question, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. And how do we know Paul wrote the book of Romans? What was that? He said he did. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when we write letters, we typically sign them at the end. New Testament authors, first century world, they sign their letters at the beginning. Paul says he wrote the book of Romans, and we've got no reason to doubt that he didn't. Now, this is important. Paul wrote Romans. What do we know about Paul briefly? What do you know about Paul in summary? Before he became a Christian, Paul was a... Persecutor, yes, but he was also what? What was his ethnicity? Somebody said a Roman. Oh, a Roman citizen. Yes. And a Jewish person. Right. What was his what guilt did he run in? What group was Paul a part of? He was a Pharisee. He actually says on one occasion, I'm the son of a Pharisee. So Paul's a Pharisee, a Jew, becomes a Christian. He's from one of the most conservative wings in Judaism. Strictest sect of the law. Paul says he was raised in. But then. He becomes a Christian. And then what's Paul's responsibility as a Christian? All of this matters for Romans. What's Paul's responsibility once he becomes a Christian? Evangelism. Primarily to who did Paul evangelize? The Gentiles. Look at Romans 11 and verse 13. Somebody who hasn't read for us. Read Romans 11 and verse 13. Okay, so Paul comes from a Jewish background, but then he's handpicked by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Why would that matter? Because throughout the book of Romans, there's a strong tension between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, raised in Judaism, could say to Jewish people, I know exactly where you've been. I know you're struggling with how the Old Testament relates to the new. I know that's hard, but I've been there. He could say to Gentile people, I've traveled all in your quarters. I've studied in your schools. And just because God has put you in Christ, you're not any better than the Jewish people. Paul could talk to both sides. In Romans 11:22, he says, behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God toward the Jews fell his severity when they unbelieve in their unbelief and Gentiles his goodness. But he says, you've got to continue in his goodness or you'll be cut off. Paul's the perfect person to be writing this letter to these churches that may be struggling with certain issues. And so Paul wrote the book of Romans. When did Paul write it? Paul wrote it in winter in about AD 56 and 57, somewhere in that range. Acts 23 and 4 says that Paul, after his third missionary journey, he was in Corinth for a little while. And it's at that time that Paul writes the book of Romans. All right. Who were the recipients of the book? Look at Romans chapter one and verse seven. Who did Paul write the book to? Yes, he says to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Here's one unique thing about the book of Romans. And I think Colossians is the only other book about which this is true, about what I'm going to say. Paul wrote the book of Romans. It's his longest letter in the New Testament. But it's also the longest letter that Paul ever wrote to a church that he had never stabbed. He didn't establish himself and he had never been there. Paul writes the book of Romans to Christians who he has never seen. Look at Romans one and verse 11 and notice what Paul says in verse 11, really down through verse. Well, we could start in 10. He says, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may at last now succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you 
and that it, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And in Romans 15, 20, he's going to say, I don't want to work where anybody else has worked before. I want to do my own labor. Paul had never been to Rome before, but he writes to these Christians. If Paul hadn't been there, who established the church at Rome? Do we know who started? I mean, you think about the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. Paul established those churches, Acts 17. You think about the book of Philippians. Well, who brought the gospel to Philippi? Paul did, Acts 16. You think about the churches in Ephesus. You read the book of Ephesians. Who brought the gospel there? Paul did, Acts 19. But Romans, there's a church in Rome. There are churches in Rome. Paul had never been there. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. How did the church get there? Well, there are several possibilities. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, and notice verse number 9 and 10. Acts 2, 9 and 10. These are the nations, 16 or so, that were gathered Jewish folks on the day of Pentecost, and Luke's just recording who they are. He says there were Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from where? Rome. Possibility number one is somebody from Rome or somebody's from Rome obeyed the gospel. Acts 2 and verse 41 says those that gladly received his words were baptized the same day they were added to them about 3,000 souls. So maybe some folks from Rome who obeyed the gospel went back to Rome, took the good news and established churches. Though Paul had never been there, they did that. Or look at Acts chapter 8. This is not the apostles. Remember, Paul had never been here. The only other possibility would be Acts chapter eight and verse four says that those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And so it's possible that when these individuals are scattered after Stephen's death and the persecution, somebody, one of the Christians went there and established this church. What does that tell us about congregations in the first century and about New Testament Christianity? Who has God's authority to establish a congregation of God's people? Any Christian, if you ever move to a city or a town and there isn't a church of Christ, people practicing New Testament Christianity there, how do you begin one? Whose permission do you need to start one? Nobody's. Just God. If you take the New Testament, you start teaching people, you start baptizing them, y'all assemble, do exactly what the New Testament says. You're a church of Christ and you don't need to write to anybody. You don't have to phone in the gospel advocates. They put you in the back of the directory. You're just in Christ. You're just a Christian. Paul had never been to Rome. And guess what? There's a church of Christ in Rome. New Testament Christianity is designed to be that way because the seed is the word of God. Luke 8, 11. It's not an apostolic succession. We don't have to run a line all the way from Lehman Avenue back to Acts chapter two. All we need is the seed of the gospel. And wherever it's planted, it only produces Christians. And that's how there was a church in Rome. But there's something else about this church that's important. Go to Acts 18. Acts 18. So. Christians eventually took the gospel to Rome and there were Jews there, but then they were kicked out of Rome. Acts 18. Somebody read for us verses one through three, please. Acts 18 verses one through three. Okay, this is important for the book of Romans. Who did Paul write to the Romans? How did the gospel get there? Somebody either from Pentecost or elsewhere took it there. But what does Luke say happened at some point during Claudius's reign? Jews in Rome were what? What does your Bible say in verse two? Kicked out by who? Claudius, in A.D. 49, there's a Latin inscription. The historian Suetonius says this man named Christus, translated Christ, his followers were causing all of these problems. He kicked the Jews out of Rome. Question, if there's a church of Christ in Rome 
and all of the Jews get kicked out, who's still there in that church? The Gentiles. Claudius dies in A.D. 60. The Jews come back home. But they've been gone for a while. The Gentiles were there. The Jews come back. Now there are problems in the church. No wonder in Romans 14 and 15, Paul talks about weak brothers and strong differences of opinion. Paul's arguing throughout the book of Romans. You guys have got to learn how to get together. And the Jews, hey, this isn't the congregation we remember. We weren't having ham sandwiches at the fellowship meals before. We don't do that. We read the book of Leviticus. Paul says in Romans 14, guys, it's just food. And the Gentiles might have been insensitive to some of the things of the Jews. The Jews come back home and the Gentiles say, we never had to worry about that before. Paul says, yeah, but these are your brothers. And so you do. A large part of what Paul's arguing for in Romans is based on this idea. Jews and Gentiles had problems. There was separation. But now they've got to learn how to dwell together in the same congregation and be God's people. Why did Paul write the book of Romans? Paul wrote Romans for several reasons. Look at Romans 15. This will be the first one. Romans 15, 24 through 26. Romans 15 and verse 24. Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. And once I've enjoyed your company for a while at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul probably wants to secure some future support from the Christians at Rome. That's one reason. But then there's another reason, and it's in the first chapter. Go to Romans 1, 14 through 16. And let's get somebody to read that. Romans 1, 14 through 16. Why does Paul write the book of Romans? Something about traveling to Spain and support. He mentions that in 15. But let's get somebody who hasn't read. Read Romans 1, 14 and 15. Okay, so why does Paul want to go there according to his own statement in 14 and 15? To do what? Preach the what? Paul wants to preach the gospel. There's two schools of thoughts on how to read the book of Romans. One group says you read Romans this way. Paul's just explaining the gospel. The whole book of Romans is theological information. Paul's explaining the gospel. He's saying, here's what you do to be saved. Here's how Christianity works. Here's what God wants from you. That's one school of thought. And some people read the book of Romans that way. There's another school of thought that says, no, the book of Romans is best read backwards. Paul is actually dealing with the strife between Jews and Gentiles. And what he does in the front half is he says, hey, Jews have sinned, Gentiles have sinned, all have sinned. Everybody's made right the same way. And this is how you live your life as a Christian, realizing that everybody stands on level ground at the foot of the cross. And it makes a difference which one of those you pick. I think the second one is right. And it says to us when we disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ, the primary thing we need to do is go back to the basics of the gospel and ask ourselves this one question. How did we all get here? How did we all get in Christ? We all were and are looking for the same things. And how is that solved? Only in Jesus. Correct. Yeah, that's right. And he's going to say more about the you and me. And we're going to get to Romans right after these major themes. We're going to look at Romans chapter one, verses one through seven. Here are just some of the major themes that you can look forward to seeing in the book of Romans. And what I mean by major themes is these are the major topics that Paul covers in the book. And some of these won't surprise you. The first one is the gospel. OK, the first verse, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Question. What does gospel mean? What does that word mean? The gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. That's right. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. However, there's one more part to that definition that can't be left off. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ through proclamation. 
That matters. You've got to say it. It's not just the good news that's with us and it's about Jesus and these are just natural, you know, archaeological facts. According to Paul and how he uses it throughout the book of Romans, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ that's issued to the world through proclamation. What does that mean? If you believe the good news, you have to tell somebody. That's the gospel. It's not just knowing that Jesus died and was buried and was raised again the third day. The gospel necessitates proclamation. It has to be announced, just like in the ancient world, people would come through and announce that a king was coming. That person was called a herald. And that's what Paul describes himself as a herald. Do you believe the gospel? The only proof of that is how loud our proclamation is. We all do that in different ways. Everybody doesn't preach a sermon or even necessarily engage in a one on one Bible study sort of deal. But there needs to be some kind of proclamation where our lives are saying out loud what we say we believe in our hearts. Jesus has been raised from the dead and that's changed everything. That's the gospel. It's not merely the good news. It's not even merely the good news about Jesus Christ. We've got to have some proclamation. That's why Paul says, I want to get there so that I can preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians. Because it's until the gospel is proclaimed, it's just the best kept secret in the world. The gospel means we've got to proclaim it. That's one of the major themes in Romans. Another one is the obedience of the faith to the nations. Look at Romans chapter one and verse five. And this is just a little Bible study hint. If something is mentioned at the beginning of an epistle and then it's mentioned at the end of an epistle, if it bookends a Bible book like that, that's probably a key into what the whole book's about. Anytime you see that, if you see something at the beginning and then it's probably almost the same identical thing at the end, you should be saying, oh, I've read that before. This whole book might be about that thing. Look at Romans one and verse five. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then when you go to Romans 16, Romans 16 and verse 26 He's talking about the mystery of the gospel, and he says it has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and it's been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. So what does Paul say in both of those verses? The obedience of the what? Of the faith among all nations. The gospel wants people to obey it and everybody in the world has to do it. And Paul says that's a part of why he wrote the obedience of the faith of all nations. Justification by faith is one of the major themes in Romans, and that just means we're made right with God by faith. Paul's going to harp over and over again on how people get made right with God. How does a person go from being lost to being saved? And one of Paul's major thrusts is that's based on justification by faith. We'll talk more about what that means. The righteousness of God is another major theme of Romans. The righteousness of God. What does God declare to be right? And how does he do that? Paul mentions that in all of those passages and a few more. Andy mentioned this earlier. Equality between Jews and Gentiles is a important subject. And he's going to talk about how those two groups get along. And then one more before we actually get into Romans. And I think it may be the most important one. The book of Romans deals with the idea that we are saved by grace and not by law. So Paul's going to focus on this. And you might imagine why this is a big deal, that people realize we're saved by grace and not by law. Question. Why would Paul emphasize that message in the book of Romans? Hey, guys, you're saved by grace and not by law. Who is Paul probably trying to talk to? Jewish people. Why? They really love their law. They were bound by the law. Any other reason why Paul would emphasize we're saved by grace and not by law? It would speak to the Gentiles to remind them how they're made right. I agree, Chuck. Roger. Unity. That's right. It would bring everybody together because everybody would be on the same page. Good point. Andy. 
That's correct. But here's the part I don't want us to miss as we read the book of Romans. And I know sometimes our English translations do this, but I'm just telling you, Paul doesn't always say the law in Greek. Paul just says we're not saved by law. Now, what is that? Why does that matter? Because when Paul says you and I are saved by grace and not by law, he means we're not saved by the Old Testament law. But nobody's ever been saved by any law. If you think you are made right with God based on your compliance with law, you name the law old or new. You're just mistaken. Look at Romans 3:28. Look at Romans 3 and verse 28. And um, somebody read Romans 3:28 for us, nice and loud. Okay. Apart from deeds of law is what Paul literally says. He doesn't say the law. Look at Romans 6:14. 6:14. For sin will have no more dominion over you, since you are not under what law, but under grace. I know Galatians six and verse two says we're under the law of Christ. I get that. And there is a sense in which the new covenant is the law. But you show me a person who's constantly doubting whether or not God forgives or accepts them even after they've complied with the divine conditions. They've done what God has said, but they're constantly worried about whether or not they're saved. And I'll show you somebody who's unclear on how we're made right to begin with with by God. We are not saved by law. We're saved by grace. That doesn't mean there's nothing we have to do. That doesn't mean obedience is out. Paul's already told you obedience of the faith to the nations is a large part of what he's telling us. But here's the big difference. Under the new covenant, our motivation for obeying is different. It's not to earn God's law or to work our way there. And if we think that it colors the way we do everything for Jesus. And a large part of the book of Romans is saying, Christians, you've got to remember you are saved by grace and not by law. By the way, Paul's going to say nobody's ever been saved by law. He's going to mention Abraham. He's going to mention Moses. And he's going to say there's never been a person in the whole world who's been made right with God just because they performed well enough. And God says, well, I can't say no to that. You're saved based on how you performed. Everybody who's going to be saved is saved by grace through faith and not by law. By law, nobody can be made right because we all know. Why can't we be made right by the law? Because none of us are what? Perfect. And so how we're made right with God matters. And Paul's going to answer that throughout the book of Romans. He's going to argue that we obey, but he's going to argue why we obey is not the same reason that the Jews thought that they did based on trying to be justified by their own human performance. Okay, let's read Romans chapter one, the first seven verses. So Paul wrote it. He wrote it to the Romans. Some of the major themes we're going to discuss. Now, let's start in Romans chapter one. And I'm going to read down through verse seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so Paul begins by introducing himself. In verse 1, he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Why does Paul start out by listing his credentials the way he does? Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Why does Paul start Romans by mentioning all of his credentials and who he is? It's something we mentioned earlier that's unique about Romans. Paul never been there before. So when he writes this letter and it's read in these congregations, they need to know Paul's a servant. Paul's an apostle 
And Paul's gospel is not from him. Notice what he says at the end of verse one. Set apart for the gospel that belongs to God. It's God's gospel. And Paul wants them to know it's not his own. Look at verse two. Paul says his gospel comes from God or the second part of verse one. I'm sorry. It says set apart for the gospel of God. That's actually in verse one. Paul wants them to know the gospel belongs to God. How do you know that the gospel originates and comes from God? How do we know that? How do we know the gospel doesn't start with man? It comes from God. I'll give you a hint. It's in verses three and four. The resurrection before he mentions the resurrection, though, he mentions what? Verse three. Or verse two, I'm sorry, the end of verse two. He promised it beforehand through the prophets. So Paul starts by introducing himself and he says, hey, I'm a genuine apostle and you can check my credentials. But notice verse two. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And so Paul says he promised it before in the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures did God ever promise about his son coming? Old Testament. Yeah. Can you think of some Old Testament passages? Give me some Old Testament passages that say something about a Messiah coming or Jesus or anything like that. Isaiah 53. Most of Isaiah. Any other passages? Old Testament that say, hey, a Messiah is coming. A savior of some sort is coming. Or Genesis 3:15, Psalm 22. Jesus uses those words on the cross. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle called of God. This was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures and God proved that it was true by his son. And look at verse four. He was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, that was God's stamp on Jesus as ultimately being the promised Messiah that's coming to the world, the resurrection. So Paul's an apostle. His gospel was already proclaimed in the Old Testament. It was testified in those passages, but it also involves his resurrection from the dead. All right. Verse five, Paul says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship, bringing about the obedience of the faith. We talked some about that already. And then Paul mentions in verse six, he's an apostle among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul probably says this in verse six to let them know, though I haven't been to Rome before and I didn't start this congregation is still under his apostolic jurisdiction. They still had to listen to what Paul was writing to them even though Paul had never been there before. And so Paul says, my apostolic jurisdiction reaches all the way to Rome, even though I'd never been there before. Now, verse seven, this will probably be as far as we get today, but that's okay. Look at verse seven. How does Paul address the Christians in verse seven? What does he call them to all those in Rome? And then what does he say? Loved by God. So Paul says that they are loved by God. He uses a word here that's only used in the Gospels. When it's referring to Jesus, when he was baptized, you remember when Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water. What did God say? This is my. See, Paul starting Romans already by telling them you're beloved, you're accepted, you're adored, you're cherished. That's what that word means. It doesn't just mean, well, God's tolerating you in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you're loved, you're adored in the same thing God said about Jesus. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, he says about you and me. If you believe that, it's going to change the way you live. And so Paul starts out by saying to those in Rome who are loved by God. And then he says they're called to be saints. When the Bible calls somebody a saint, what does it mean? What is a biblical saint? Just a Christian. Yes, but it's somebody who's set apart for God's purpose. It's a special group of people who've done what God has said. And as a result of that, they're sanctified. Who's a saint in this room? 
Everybody, everybody who's in Christ called to be saints. And so this is one of Paul's longest introductions. And the reason why is because Paul had never been there before. He wanted them to know who he was, why he was writing, the authority behind his writing. But also Paul wanted to say, I want you to know you're loved by God. God cares about you. God loves you. And you've been you've been called to be saints. You're supposed to be different. Jews and Gentiles get along, work out your differences, work out your issues because you all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. The bell's about to ring in about 30 seconds, so we'll stop there this morning, but we will pick up in the NPR, Lord willing, next week with Romans chapter 1 and verse 8.